As we read of the birth of the Lord Jesus and his early development, first of all, to the angel's words to Mary in Luke chapter 1. The Lord said, We read of from the Catechism in a minute, talks about the virgin birth and about the life of Christ. At Luke 1, at verse 30, Luke 1, 30, God's word. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is is to be born will be called the Son of God. And turning to chapter 2, birth of Jesus, Luke 2, verses 6 and 7. Luke 2, verse 6, so it was that while they were there in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Turning to verse 39, of that chapter, Luke 2, 39, reading a longer section down through verse 52, Luke 2 at 39. So when they had performed all things, they brought Jesus to be circumcised, and Mary had come to the temple to offer offerings for purification. Verse 39, so when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And then at chapter 3, verse 21, 
Luke 3, 21, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. Now he's an adult, he's entering his ministry here. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi. Reading on down, at the end of verse 31, the end of verse 31, the son of David, verse 32, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. And then at verse 34, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. And at the end of the genealogy, verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. I'd like to read one more passage. It's from Galatians chapter 4. I want to refer to it later, but I thought I'd read it here. Galatians 4, verses 4 through through 7. Galatians 4, at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Let's turn from the Word of God to the church's summary, the Heidelberg Catechism. If you take out that smaller forms and prayers book in front of you, and turn to page 215. If you're visiting with us and you're not familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, this is uh, a summary of the Bible's teachings. It's written in question and answer form to be useful for teaching purposes. And that's why it's called a catechism. And it's at this point expounding or explaining the language of the Apostles' Creed. And so on page 215, question 35 says, what does it, what does the Apostles' Creed mean when it says that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, well, it means that the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary a true human nature so that he might also become David's true descendant, like his brothers in all things except for sin. And then question 36, listen to this carefully. How does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? He is our mediator, and in God's sight, he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. Let's bow together before the Lord and ask God to do what he alone can do to make his word fruitful in our lives today. Shall we do that? Heavenly Father, we return to you again to ask for your mercies upon us as we come to your word. What great mysteries are before us, what glorious realities, we pray that your spirit would give us eyes to see, that your word be declared truthfully, and give to us the fear of God as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, people of God, we come this morning to that glorious mystery of godliness that God became a man 
that the eternal Son of God has entered into our humanity, that God has visited us upon earth to lift us up to heaven. And it is a glorious and wonderful thing, isn't it, to think that the eternal God, the Son of God, came down to earth to be born of Mary, that the person of the Son of God took up or assumed a human nature, body and soul. And it's staggering to consider that, 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 that the Creator stoops down to now also become a creature, and that the eternal and omnipotent God becomes also now a helpless babe lying in a manger. These are, these are staggering wonders, aren't they, of the story of redemption. We speak of the incarnation. That means that the Son of God became carnate. He took up flesh. He took up our human nature. And that's the wonder we celebrate, of course, at Christmas, that God has so entered into the human story in this most dramatic way. He hasn't just visited us, but he's become one with us in our humanity. And the very way in which the eternal Son of God took up a human nature, that itself, born of a virgin, demonstrates to us that God was pleased to do this and that it was all of God to save us, right? Why does the Son of God take up a human nature from a, through a virgin? Through a woman who says, how could it be? I've never known a man. He does it in order to proclaim the news that this is all of God. That he, the Son of God, is not dragged down from heaven. That he has not come according to the will of man and the plans of men. It wasn't Joseph and Mary who said, hey, let's have children. But it was all of the sovereign work of God, the Son of God, preparing a womb and entering in, pleased to do that, pleased to rescue us. The grand miracle of history that God has entered in. Well, much more could be said about that. This morning I want to focus actually not so much on that, but on the second truth before us today, the one in the second question and answer of the catechism. When question 36 says, now what does it benefit you? How does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? And it says he is our mediator, and in God's sight, he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. To begin to appreciate that this morning, the very first thing we have to recognize is that our lives cry out for a redo. Maybe the boys and girls, you've, you've learned a new game. Maybe you've gone outside, and I remember at Vacation Bible School a couple years ago that some of you learned how to play kickball. And that, that ball was rolled to you, and you wound up to kick that ball. And some of you missed or just barely caught the edge of the ball. It didn't go very far. And, and you wondered, you could see it on your face, can I do it again? Can I do it again? I want to redo, right? But as you grow up, you'll discover it's not just about kickball or anything like that, but it's about some very deep and troubling things that we wish we had a redo. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Maybe you yourself have done it. Somebody with an anguished heart. Somebody perhaps weeping, weeping and sorrowing and making that heart-rending proclamation, I wish I could do it all over again. Maybe somebody with their face in their hands weeping. I wish, oh, I wish I could do it all over again. I'd do anything to do it all over again. We feel that sometimes, don't we? I've had many days where I have thought to myself, I would live this whole day over again just to be able to redo that spot. I would, 
I would relive this whole week if I could go back and take away those ten words I spoke. Maybe you said, I would relive my entire life if I could fix that. Now, in the movies, you can, right? Time travel. In the books, you can. You go back in time and you can fix it. But in real life, it doesn't happen. You can't go back. You can't go back. But you see, even when we say to ourselves, I wish I could go back and have another chance. I wish I could have another chance for a redo. Even in thinking that, we have forgotten two things. Number one, if we went back in time, who's to say we'd do better the second time? We might do the very same thing we did the first time. Or if we redid the wrong the first time, we might commit ten other wrongs that we would want to go back and do after we got back from being there. And the second thing that we forget is this. When we sorrow and say, I wish I could redo that over again, we're fixating on one particular wrong, but it's not the only wrong. When I've said to myself, I would relive this whole day to take back those words I spoke, I assume that my great trouble in life is those words I spoke, which are usually just the ones I'm embarrassed about because somebody heard them. What about all the other wrongs? What about all the other wrongs I did? The truth is my entire life is stained with sin and there are wrongs everywhere. My desires are often unrighteous, my motives impure, my actions disobedient. So we read of this development of the Lord Jesus from his birth and growing up and see his his perfect progression in holiness. We're aware that our lives have not developed that way. We're reminded how different is our beginning. David, of course, prays in Psalm 51, the great king of Israel, who has lusted and stolen a soldier's wife and has killed that soldier. Remember, David prays, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's saying, at the very beginning of my existence, at the moment I was conceived, I was already a sinner. That original sin we inherited through Adam, our father and representative, has been visited upon us, and we are corrupt from conception, corrupt from birth. And so David is saying, and my, my lust and my murder were not some, some out-of-character indiscretions, but, but they've come out of the very heart of my wickedness within me. I didn't go wrong in adulthood. I was wrong from the, from the start of my existence. You know, sometimes babies are born with a heart defect. That's troubling, but the reality is we're all born with a heart defect, aren't we? And that should be troubling to us. In fact, it's, it's quite shocking, isn't it, when you see a one-year-old or two-year-old break out someday in rage and fury? And you're just like, how is it possible that little life has such fury inside of it? Or some of you fathers know what it's like to be standing over a one- or two-year-old and you tell them to do something they say no. And you think to yourself, I can pick you up and make you do whatever I want. And you defy me and say, no. Where does that come from? And then as we grow up, it doesn't go away. Saying this morning, David, Psalm 25, remember not the sins of my youth. Our youths are filled with sin. We didn't just overcome all that. In fact, many of the sins we struggle with today are, are things we struggle with in our youth. Maybe our parents told us we were stubborn or impatient, and we still wrestle with that. Maybe David, as he thinks of his lust with Bathsheba, has to confess, I've wrestled with lust for a long time. 
Maybe worries and fears still plague us. Maybe our vain conceit about appearance in our youth is still the thing that marks our lives. And even if we, even if we grew up in a Christian home with godly parents, we had plenty of sins in our youth, and then we come to adulthood, it doesn't all evaporate, now I've grown out of it. But we say with, with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, that the, the good that I want to do, I don't do. The evil I don't want to do, it's there with me. What's wrong with me? Who will rescue me? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And so we're aware that we wound those we love most, we act in unimaginably selfish and arrogant and proud and angry ways that we are often thankless before the God who gives us the breath of life and sent his son to redeem us. We betray him. We, like a little two-year-old, say no to God's word. And this is the line of sinners. That's the genealogy we read in, in Luke. The whole list of sinful people, one to another. And so, as you look through history, you just see this trail of muddy footprints. And as we look through our own lives, we see muddy footprints. We, we are corrupted and we do corrupt things. And is our great solution to invent a time machine and go back and redo? That's rather short-sighted. Our whole lives, in fact, have to be redone. As long as we think it's just one or two things we need to redo, then we'll be depressed. Somebody wrote somewhere, I think it was a chapter of a title in a book. I don't remember who wrote it. I don't even remember what he meant by it. But the words were provocative and they stuck with me. The words are, cheer up, you're worse than you think. Cheer up, you're worse than you think. If you think it's just one or two things you need to do and you just fixate on that your whole life, if I could just go back and redo that, you're going to be pretty depressed. But if God brings you to the point to say, my whole life is a mess. My whole life has to be redone. There's sin everywhere. I can't do it. There's no solution in me. You see, then you can cheer up to look for the one God gives you. And God has provided it. Our lives cry out for a redo. And Christ has come and redone our lives. Think of that secondly. Christ has come and redone our lives. So often when we think about salvation, we think just about the cross of the Lord Jesus, don't we? And the cross, of course, is central. That self-offering of the Lord Jesus on the cross is the supreme and indispensable act of salvation. But you know what? The cross is not the only indispensable act of salvation. We talk about the saving death of Christ, but we ought to talk also about the saving birth of Jesus, the saving conception of Jesus, the saving growing up of Jesus. Without these things, there is no salvation. God sent his son to be born of a woman into this world. You know, it's not that the son of God takes up this human nature formed in heaven and parachutes down to earth. But he comes to be born of the woman. He comes to be born of humanity, to be one with us in the flesh of this humanity, these descendants of Adam. Because he needs to be part of the family if he's going to take our place on the cross. He needs to be a son of David. He needs to be a son of Abraham. He needs to be a son of Adam. But he also begins where we begin in the womb because he has to redo our entire lives. It's not just 
that we speak of his substitutionary death on the cross. He was our substitute there. But we ought to speak of the substitutionary life of Christ. He's relived our life for us. Theologians sometimes use these categories. They speak of the the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. The passive obedience of Christ we use to refer to all that Christ suffered in terms of the penalty of the law. The passive obedience, he suffers the penalty, the curse upon us and our sin. But is that enough? If you got hired as a truck driver and you were told that after you deliver 60 loads, then you'll get $10,000. And as you take off of the first load, you drive it off the road into a ravine and your job is threatened. And then your good friend says, you know what? I'm rich. I'm just going to pay for all your damage. He buys a new truck and all that. And so your job is secured. Do you get $10,000 then? No, you haven't, you haven't delivered the first load. In the garden, God promised Adam everlasting life on the condition of perfect obedience. The tree of life was there. The promise of eternal life if Adam would pass the test and obey God perfectly. When Adam sinned, and when we've sinned, we've come under the penalty of the curse and on the cross Jesus bears that penalty of the curse but does that by itself secure for us favor no at best it just puts us back to where Adam was we've still got our job but we've got a long ways to go we need perfect obedience and so we speak not just of the passive obedience that Christ suffered the curse but his active obedience that he kept all of the law for us. His entire life was one of law-keeping. He was born of a woman, born under the law. The almighty lawgiver subjects himself to the law to be in our place as one who keeps the law and all that righteousness might be credited to us. So Christ is born of a woman just like us. Born into the world the way we were born into the world. He's wrapped in swaddling cloths the way babies were wrapped in swaddling cloths in those days. Strips of cloth. He's helpless. He's hungry. He has to be fed. His diapers need to be changed. He he grows up like we grow up. He, 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 He begins to experience different emotions. He learns to control his emotions. He begins to learn how to speak to people, how to relate to people, how to be a friend to people. He begins to feel what it is to be injured, to be teased. He grows up. He grows in stature, he grows emotionally, he grows physically, he grows spiritually, just like us, except he's also so different from us that he's conceived and born not in sin but in holiness. Maybe not having an earthly father in that regard signals the break in Adam's line of sinners. But he... uh, Mary, of course, I was going to say Eve. Mary, of course, was a sinner. We don't believe in the Immaculate Conception. Mary was not born sinless. Mary was a sinner, and her mother was a sinner, and her mother was a sinner. But the Spirit protected that human nature of Christ in the womb so it was not corrupted. So though Christ took of the very DNA of Mary, he didn't receive her pollution. He was sanctified from the womb. And as he developed, his development was so different from ours, wasn't it? Luke 2.40, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the grace of God, or the favor of God, was upon him. There's no ordinary development. There's no 
rage in the two-year-old. There's no disobedience to his parents. There were no perverted thoughts. Luke 2.52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now think about that. He increased the human nature of Christ. As a man, he had to grow in every way, even in wisdom, but there was never any sin. Hebrews 5, verse 8, says, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He learned obedience. Now, you have to be careful there, don't you? That doesn't mean that he used to be disobedient and then he learned to obey. But he learned obedience, Hebrews 5, 8 is saying, in that he increased in his capacity to obey. He increased in his ability to obey through temptations and through trials. The human nature was being formed and fashioned to prepare him for that ultimate act of obedience of laying down his life upon the cross. His heart and mind and will were being molded, even forged in that furnace of temptation and suffering. And so it must see, people of God, is this. Christ's life is all of one piece. You can't separate the cross from the conception, the birth, and the whole of Christ's life. He was conceived and born in holiness, so he could develop in perfect holiness, so he could learn obedience, so he could come to that climactic moment of lying, laying down his life on the cross. And so his entire life, was one in which he said, Psalm 40, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Behold, I have come to do your will. And so the whole life of Christ is a giant yes. A giant yes to God's will against the no of our lives. We from the start said to God, no. And here comes the perfect man who says yes at every turn. One writer puts it like this. Here is the story of our life. Every step we take, the mark of sin has been left behind, leaving a trail of trouble. But thank God for the flawless Christ. From his holy conception and birth onward, he has perfectly lived our life and retraced our steps From conception until the last breath at death, Christ puts over your sins the covering of his holy blood so that your record before God might be painted with his perfect life. Christ never failed. He's the second Adam, but he didn't succumb to the temptation in the garden as the first Adam did. In the wilderness, he stood firm. And in the garden of Gethsemane, he pleaded with God, but he stood firm. He's the son of Abraham, but he didn't try to pawn off his wife as his sister to spare his own flesh. He's the son of David, but he didn't succumb to lust or murder. He's the perfect man. He's the righteous man. And why did he do all of that? Why did the righteous and eternal son of God give himself to be born of a woman, born beneath the law? He did it to take responsibility for you and me. Because he knew that our lives were crooked from the start. Our lives were a trail of slime. And he wanted to redo our whole life that he might lay over our life his perfect 
righteousness. So we could be accepted by God forever. And that means then finally that we are free and forever blessed. We are free and forever blessed. That finally this morning. If Christ has suffered the penalty for our sin, then we're free of all condemnation. And if Christ has obeyed the law for us, then we have inherited all blessedness, all the favor of God. And so we're free to sing and praise God. So Galatians 4 says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth of his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. That's your glorious liberty in the Lord Jesus Christ. What the perfect man is entitled to, the the blessed life, the eternal life, communion with God, what, what the perfect man receives by obeying God perfectly in the covenant of works is now yours because you're united to Christ by faith. What does that mean? It means the condition of obedience is already fulfilled. You don't have to live your life every day thinking, I have to obey, 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 in order that God will be pleased with me. I must obey to be accepted by God. No, Christ has already done that for you. His life of perfect righteousness is already placed over your life. The blessedness of God, the communion with God is already secured. Now maybe someone here this morning is sitting in anguish and full of regret, overwhelmed by regrets and shame. Well, then one of two things is true. Either Christ's righteousness is not your own, or it is your own, but you're not realizing it. If Christ's righteousness is not your own, then how does it become my own? It becomes my own by believing on Jesus, by turning from my sin and and, and taking hold of Christ, crying out to him, save me, Lord, by entrusting my life to him, say, I have no hope in what I could redo. My hope is in you. You are my life redone. And as you put faith in Christ, and all his righteousness is yours, his, his death for your sin and his obedient life, your righteousness. But if we do believe on Christ and we're still overwhelmed with guilt and shame and hopelessness, then the command is to remember what you have in Christ. Cry out to him again and trust yourself to him daily. Remember what you have in Jesus. He was born of a woman for your sake. He was born under the law for your sake. He came knowing what your life was and he came to redo it. He took responsibility for your failed life to redeem you and make you a child of God with all the privileges and all the joys of sonship. So you're not a slave, but you have the rights of a son. Of ourselves, there was not one hour of our life that was pleasing to God. In ourselves, we, we have not one hour of our existence that was pleasing to God and accepted by God. You go through your whole life. Your life apart from Jesus that first hour after you were conceived, you were not pleasing to God. Sinner, child of wrath. First hour which you're born into this world, not pleasing to God. Sinner, under God's wrath. 
The first hour of being 10 years old, not pleasing to God. And you go down the line, right? There's not an hour of our existence in ourselves that we aren't children of God's wrath and anger. But in Jesus Christ, it all changes. Now there's not an hour of our life in which we aren't pleasing to God. And we can rejoice to read Psalm 139, that all my days were written in your book before one of them came to be. They were written not with fury and anger, but they were written in love. Every day of my life is written in the blood of the Lord Jesus and in his righteousness. You can say with Psalm 22, for my mother's womb you have been my God. And so now we look over our life and there's not a stage of life that's not presented to God and reconciled to God and accepted by God. There's hope for conception and birth. We don't have to, with Job, curse the day of our birth. And when we see a one- or two-year-old in stubborn obstinance or in anger, we don't have to lose hope, but we can look upon our covenant children and remember at the baptismal font what was promised to them. A new life was promised to them, a Savior who redoes the life of a one-year-old. And there's hope for childhood and adolescence, teenage years. There's hope for those who are growing up who are trying to learn to control emotions, who are trying to learn to grow in wisdom, and who often fail. But I'm not alone. God's not going to cast me off when I stumble. Christ has already been the perfect 10-year-old, the perfect 12-year-old, the perfect teenager, and he gives me all of his righteousness. And as I look at my trials now, they're not designed to destroy me, but God uses them in Christ to grow my obedience, that I might be ready for greater service to his kingdom. And there's hope for adulthood. If you say, I can't believe it. I mean, you have this, you have this sometimes, right, when you... Go to the doctor's office. The doctor is half your age. You think, wow, I'm older than I think. I should really have this thing figured out by now, this, this life of obedience. And you say, I haven't figured it out. I'm still sinning. And yet Christ has covered that sin. And there's hope for old age. Maybe someone says, well, Jesus, you know, he only lived to be 30 or so. He doesn't know about old age. Well, I'll tell you what, he knows about old age. His body became very old in those last hours. The life was sucked out of him. His body broken and bruised. And I've heard, heard older saints over the years say, you know, all my friends have died. I alone am left. Well, nobody was more alone than Jesus upon the cross. No one. And he, in the midst of great loneliness, obeyed God for you. He obeyed God for you. And so there's hope for our whole life. Our lives will not be futile. And we're not enslaved to regret. Because though we can't go back and do it all over again, somebody already has. Redone it all from conception to the very end, from the crib to the grave. Christ has walked our whole life, retraced our step, and obeyed at every turn. 
If we didn't have Jesus Christ, then it's only a life of despair and sorrow, right? Crying out over and over again. I wish I could do it all over again. I wish I could do it all over again. But in Jesus Christ, there's the liberty of sonship. God counts you, brother or sister of Jesus Christ. He's given to you the full inheritance of a son. He's placed his spirit in your heart and in your life. And he's made you a co-heir with Christ. So that all that the true son has inherited, the eternal fellowship of God, is now yours. God smiles upon you. God's acceptance is yours. God is with you at every turn. God hears your cries for mercy and forgiveness. God helps you in the midst of weakness. Christ is your complete and perfect Savior. The life of the Christian is not the life of unending shame, regret, and despair. It's the life of now being able to crowd, Abba, Father. I'm sorry, Father, I sinned against you. But I thank you that in Christ I'm clean. And I'm righteous before you, I'm accepted by you, that your smile rests upon my whole life. And you have favored me every day of my life. I, your covenant child, from the womb you have been my God. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we stand amazed at what you've done for us in sending your Son. We praise you, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would humble yourself, you the great lawgiver, to be one upon whom obedience is the obligation and the demand. You did this not because you needed it, for you are the holy God, eternally righteous. You did this for us. You took responsibility for our broken lives for our failures. And we thank you that you have kept the law for us at every turn. Give to us your righteousness and release us, we pray, God. Though we always wish we would have done differently, we look forward to the new heavens and new earth when every tear we wiped away and all things be set straight. But may we not in this life succumb to despair for having offended you, for having hurt others, for having hurt ourselves. But may we have our eyes turned to the Lord Jesus to rejoice in him again that where I have failed, he has done it perfectly for me. Oh God, make us Christians who rejoice in this Savior. In his name we pray, amen.